0: So welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening and subscribing to Behind the Screen. I am your host, J.T. Kane, and I'm here with my good friend and producer, Matt Corey, and we are here to talk about auditions, specifically orchestra auditions, which take place behind a screen, in case you were wondering, (laughs) hence the name, Behind the Screen, right? We're very clever here. (laughs) Yeah. But we hope that, you know that our discussions and our our guests will be a resource uh, for anyone who has an audition coming up or doesn't even know about auditions and what what goes behind the, the the process did you know we have a sponsor we do
1: this podcast is brought to you by insight for the blind a very special recording studio based in Fort Lauderdale Florida where over 100 volunteers produce talking books and magazines for the blind and physically handicapped so that all may read. See for yourself at insightfortheblind.org.
0: Nice. Well, I'm actually here when, when Matt and I were first talking about this and about auditions. Um, of course, we all think about instrumental auditions, right? But I actually know an orchestra librarian who is not only one of the best orchestra librarians I know, but just happens to be my wife, and she's here with us today. So I'd like to welcome Lisa Dempsey-Kane. Welcome, Lisa. Hi. And Lisa is the principal orchestra librarian for the Juilliard School. Um, and so we, you know, I wanted to talk to her about it because I don't think many people realize that orchestra librarians actually take an audition.
2: That's right. Yeah, it's actually a very competitive process, just, just as if you were taking an instrumental audition.
0: Well, let's start out because what's what's fascinating to me about you is that uh, not only are you an orchestra librarian, but you are also, you're also a violinist. So I kind of want to take it back a little bit and kind of compare the, the, the two you know, audition processes and, and see the similarities and the differences. But first, let's just kind of start out, um, where are you from?
2: I grew up in Rhode Island, um, so the smallest state in the Union. But it was also uh, a, had a really, really rich um, music education uh they had programs all over the state, actually. So um I was lucky at, to be there and to be have access to New York and Boston um, just a quick drive away when I got older. But even though it seems like Rhode Island's so tiny and you know what what could you you know what could they possibly offer? It, it actually turned out to be a great place to grow up
0: and you come from a pretty big family of musicians.
2: I do, my parents um, are both violinists. My dad was a professional violinist, played in the Rhode Island Philharmonic and taught at the University of Rhode Island in the music department. My mom is still a working professional violinist, um, also Mm -hmm. played in the Rhode Island Philharmonic for many years. Um, And both my parents formed a quartet. Um, They played in Carnegie Hall, they recorded, Um, they actually did really well for a very long time.
0: I remember you told me that you actually played the three of you together in in rhode island philharmonica one time right
2: we did when i was in college in boston um i would i was a sub in the orchestra and i would travel in and at the time all three of us were playing in the first violin section and i remember the first time i finished a concert there i looked up and i saw my parents looking back at me and smiling it was just that moment where I mean who knew it would end up like that but you know and i also knew at that time that this is so unique and and how long can this you know it it was a a moment that probably won't last forever and it really didn't you know my mom moved away shortly after that my dad retired but it it was really special i can still see their faces
0: so one of the stories actually that was a really good story but (laughs) i don't know if i could because that was really nice i i don't i i didn't come from a a musical family so i can't imagine what that felt like to see your parents on stage with you and to be so proud of you so that's that's actually really cool you told me once about you have a really kind of cool story with with your violin what what kind of violin do you have again
2: a pasquale Ventipane from 1875
0: yeah and and how did you get that violin
2: It actually belonged to my grandfather. So my grandfather was also um, not a professional violinist. He did it more as a hobby. Um, He eventually became a very successful businessman. But his family had come over from Russia, and he found this violin in a shop in Brooklyn and played it for many, many years. And when it became clear that I was going to major in violin in college, I was a senior in high school. I was attending the Boston University Tanglewood Institute. Booty. Booty booty.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and they lived nearby the festival and so I went to visit them one day and I had no idea this was going to happen but my my grandfather took out the violin and he played a little bit of the Beethoven violin concerto on it and then just handed it over to me and I I don't know if I understood at the time. I wish I wish I could go back in time and say the right things but you know maybe he knew that I was young enough that I wouldn't say the right things. I don't know. But Looking back on that moment, I mean, first of all, what what a moment for him that he's, you know, passing along this violin to to mm-hmm. his granddaughter. But also how lucky was I? It, you know, I had this incredible violin at the age of, you know, 17, and I, I didn't realize it. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but boy, did I appreciate it later.
1: I love the sound of the Pasquale. I love it. <laughs> it's my favorite the sound.
0: It's my favorite <laughs> So you went to um, you went to uh, your undergrad. You were you went to Hart, right? That's right. And then you did your master's at at where was it again?
2: Uh, Boston University.
0: And who are you? Who are your teachers?
2: At Hart, I studied with Mitchell Stern, and at BU, I studied with Bela Kais.
0: And you also went to you you mentioned um, BUTI, and but you you've gone to a lot of music festivals, right?
2: yeah I had this thing for a while where i I didn't want to repeat any festivals, and I wanted to try to go to all of them. so I think for twenty years straight, twenty summers straight i did I did festivals It and was a different was one a every little year. obsessive yeah, a little obsessive there um,
0: <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. I've never heard of that that is kind of unique, yeah, it's interesting because uh Lisa and I we met at a summer festival, but in two thousand six, so we were both working there. But you know, when we first met, we started talking about all the festivals that we went to, and we actually missed each other by like a year or two in, in a lot of different festivals. There was there was the, the BUTI. I think you were there before me, right?
2: I think I was there the year before you. Yeah, which is weird because I'm like 15 years younger than you, but
0: it is weird. I you know. I definitely yeah. robbed the cradle. Um, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but then also like Mancini Institute, Aspen. Matt and I actually went to Aspen together. That's where we met. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was working in the, in the, ki- well, I was a student, but also in the kitchen
1: <laughs> wearing a cowboy hat. Wearing a cowboy hat. This was 1993.
0: Yeah. That was my second year. I was there 92, 93. Yeah. Insane. Oh my god. Which is weird because I was only 10. So. And then it wasn't until, till years
1: after that, did we like kind of re-meet at UM. Mm. At UM. Yep but we had to put the aspen thing together so that's kind of kind of cool serendipitous it is yep and then for about 10 years i hated you
0: well i mean it takes a
1: while for people to like me <laughs> that's true so
0: I'm, I'm like a fungus so can i ask lisa
1: a question <laughs> yeah when you started doing library work did you know that there was also an audition for librarian cuz it just seems kind of counterintuitive it seems like a job that you would apply for and interview for as opposed to actually audition for?
2: That's a great question. And no, I did not know. I had no idea when I started how how involved the library world was. Um, I started the same way many, many librarians start, which is by helping out their the orchestra that, maybe their home orchestra or um, the orchestra that they're currently playing in. So for me, that was Chattanooga Symphony in Tennessee, where I was the associate concert master. And I, I just knew instinctively that um, I, I would take to the library. Um, I enjoyed doing bowings when I had to, you know, bow, bow for my section or something like that, make up bowings. And so I, I knew that I would enjoy the, I, I don't, it's not tedium, but you know, there, there's a certain, it's calming to bow a set of parts. So
0: kind of getting like a Zen state. Yeah, right?
2: exactly. It's meditative. Um, so I started doing that, and I, mm-hmm. I was supr- I was really surprised how much I enjoyed it to the point where I would uh, try to get my practicing done as quickly as possible that day so I could do library for the rest of the day. <laughs> um, and it started to become a major imbalance in my life. Um, I wanted to do library all day long, um, but I wasn't quite ready to give up playing, and that's a, that's a position many librarians are in, you know, get in at, at some point. Um, and then eventually, you just have to you just have to do it. I still have to this day a message from my father on my cell phone. Um, I had called him saying that, you know, maybe I want to get out of playing, but I don't know. it's 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 I've spent so many years trying to become the best violinist I can, and I'm just going to throw it away. And my dad uh, passed away about six years ago and I still have this message where he's, it's just kind of a tough love message. Like, if you wanna do it, you do it. You know, it all, everything leads to the next thing. So in my case, all of those years of acting as a concertmaster ended up really playing into to my next job, basically. I think every librarian comes at it from a different place. Um, and for me, my, my party trick you know is that i i actually was a, a playing member of the or- of or- an orchestra so i come at it from a different perspective i know exactly what they want to see on the stands mm-hmm. i know where the anxiety is you know it, it's just a little bit different maybe from some of other librarians
1: not only a playing member but a concert master I mean, I imagine that's probably a rare thing too.
2: Yeah. And a super, super anxious concertmaster. So therefore, (laughs) if I feel good about what I'm putting on the stand, it's probably okay for other people too. Um, You know, if I'm going to fix a page turn, if it, if, if I feel, you know, if it's a lot for me to look at, even just sitting in the library, I'll fix it. So I'm less anxious. Therefore, probably other people will be too. The idea is that they're they're not supposed to worry about, you know, the actual physical music on the stands during a performance. So it really needs to be as clear as possible. There's an old library phrase that, um, you know, a, a librarian should be, you know, if you do your job correctly, nobody will know that the librarian is there. I've never been super happy about that. Because I just think it gives the wrong impression. I, the idea is that, of course, you do your job well and, you know, It kind of, the work stands for itself, but I don't want to be a librarian hiding in the shadows either. I want to be, I want to have a big voice. I want to be, you know, a member of the orchestra and I want to have a lot of say and a lot of opinions about things.
0: What made you first, because I don't remember (laughs) when I was young, when I was young, I don't remember the librarian. You know, you just kind of, oh, the music's there. Great. What made you realize, you know, that there was a librarian? Who did you have as, who was your mentor? Because you, you know, violin as a violinist you had a teacher i mean did you have a teacher as a as a librarian or someone that kind of showed you the way
2: i didn't and many librarians don't so it's kind of a learn on the job learn from other librarians sort of thing mm-hmm. and that's that's one of the biggest challenges of it now i mean we can read a lot of stuff online and try to figure it out that way um you know obviously 15 years ago that wasn't quite as easy but you know at the same time we have a conference every year uh, i know it sounds hilarious a library conference but
0: it's a great conference i've been to a few
2: fantastic and you know they have you know they have sessions (laughs) you know from everything from you know uh, dealing with copyright to um, dealing with other members of your administration to you know just everything you can imagine they have a session on it but most importantly what i come away with every year is like okay everyone has the exact same problems that i do or issues or frustrations or challenges um so it's it's a good bonding time, honestly. Um, but that's also where we learn mm. a lot. It's almost like a little four-day school every year.
0: So, you, um, when you first started in as a in library, when you first started to do it, you were at New World, right? When you first kind of realized that this might be something you'd want to do.
2: Oh, this is so embarrassing. This is, what, this is when I first noticed that there was a librarian. <laughs> so that yes let's backtrack (laughs) that means i went through youth orchestra that means i went through college and never really knew how the music got on the stand or what
0: i mean i totally Ah, get that because i never i never realized it either but you you had told me that you know when at new world uh when you first went up to the library and you met uh and you met martha and it was also and who else there was who was the librarian then the the fellow
2: paul beck right
0: yep
2: so And I became friends with Paul and I got to know Martha and I spent time with Paul asking him what exactly he was doing. And it, it seemed so interesting to me. And I, I guess I didn't obviously act on it for another, Oh my gosh, you know, almost 20 years, 15 years. I don't know. But he definitely, he and Martha definitely kind of planted the seed in me of like, Mm Oh, this, this sounds like something that would be a, a, you know, big Lisa thing.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean you're very organized, you're very, you know, you you like to do that kind of you know, that that work where it's it can give you, you know, it's a start and a finish, right?
2: Yeah. So when I would practice, um, you know, I'd spend days and days and days practicing and one of the frustrations for me was, you know, I w- I would really accomplish something one day and then come back to it the next day and it was exactly where I had started the day before. So I, I, there was no tangible evidence of it. And sometimes I feel like it would backtrack. And then I would stop practicing, go do some library, and then I would see my big stack of Boeings that I just completed or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I could see it in front of me. And that was really satisfying.
1: That's an interesting thing, because even my wife, is; a, she's a list person. She likes to make lists and gets a lot of satisfaction in being able to scratch things off of that list. And Uh, I know people like that. I'm guessing that you probably are like that to some degree.
2: Oh yeah. I love my lists.
1: Yeah. See, I don't (laughs) care about lists. Like, I mean, I keep a schedule and things happen and I go to them and they go by, but I don't really care about like scratching things off a list, but I, it's a, I think it's a, just a different personality type. It's interesting.
2: You know, it turns out that that organization and list making and all of that has really come in handy with all of my jobs, um. Because, you know, half of the job really, or well, one third of the job, let's say, is is really keeping things organized. You know, if you work at a place like Juilliard, there's so much going on at that school and so many projects and so many students that you've got to keep it organized and you've got to have a schedule and and figure out how you're going to tackle each thing and and quickly and thoroughly.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit because, I mean, I guess there's for for people listening and, and just that know what an orchestra librarian is. And for those that don't know what an orchestra, what does an orchestra librarian do? And we've talked about bowings and things like that. I know this is kind of the age old question. What do you do? Is there a short answer?
2: (laughs) Well, there is, there is one uh, one thing that a lot of librarians say is, uh, you know, we get the the right music in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And although that is true, it doesn't really describe a lot of the behind the scenes work. Um, so, yes, we do the Boeing. So that means that in most cases, you know, a concert master or principal second or some, you know, will bring you the Boeing's and you will actually copy those into each part in the section by hand with pencil. Um, and obviously that takes a very long time. That's one of the most time consuming things about being a librarian. Um, that can take, you know, that can easily take a week or two weeks, depending on the piece.
0: So there's an order as far as who gives you the bowings first, right? Because is it so like the concertmaster, you need to get that part before you could do a second violin part. And then before you can do, a viol- I don't know. I'm literally asking.
2: Yeah, that's right. I don't even think we've described what bowings are. So bowings are um, the markings that you put in a part to make sure that everybody in in the section their bows are going the same direction mm-hmm. um makes it look organized uh not only organized from the audience perspective but um makes the articulations and makes it makes it sound very uniform also in the right. orchestra every orchestra does it a little bit differently but it does start with the concert master who will either check over existing bowings or make up their own bowings um, and it kind of fans out from there. Maybe you'll share those concert master bowings with principal second and viola, or it just really depends. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to do it a little bit differently, but they will use the concert master as a, as a, a reference starting reference point.
0: And fortunately for you at uh, being a string player, being a violinist, you have the ability to, to know kind of, um, you know, if they're, if they're good bowings, if they work, you can also help out if say, you know, the second violins don't, uh, don't have their bowings in in time or something like that, you need to get it rushed out. You can actually do the bowings for them, right? Cause it's gotta be a little bit tricky if you're not a string player to do that. I mean, Matt, would you be able to, as a bassoonist, would you be able to put bowings in the part? No, just- I'm actually
1: glad that Lisa described what bowings are. Cause I didn't even know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, it's come in handy, honestly. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll just come across a little human error in, in, the concertmaster part or something like that. And I'll just say, I don't make a big thing about it. You just fix it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But yes, there have been plenty of times where, uh, you know, think about a last minute encore going on the, going on the stands, you know, that just got added during the concert or something. Well, you can't put out blank parts. So maybe that means you're going to bow it super quickly. At Juilliard, it's really come in handy to know how to do that. Just because we don't always have the same concertmaster. It changes for every concert. And, sometimes, you know, they just don't feel comfortable um, putting in their own bowings, yet they're just maybe not at that stage in their education. And so there are things like um, when we read a composer's piece, I'll just I'll put in the bowings for the entire string section. And of course, the players can tweak them as needed, but it gives them a good starting place. Mm -hmm. Um, And I keep them very basic. I don't try to do anything fancy. And it, it does save a lot of time, honestly.
0: So, aside from Boeing's, what else? Uh, what else would, does a librarian do?
2: We also deal a lot with copyright. So, um, when you you know we we well first we we have to acquire the music for the library. So that might mean that we already own it. Great, you can just go in the back room and pull the music off the shelf. Super easy. But we may not own it, and we may have to buy it. Okay, well, it's a little bit like you know ordering a shirt from from the Gap or something. You know, a little bit like that. You just put in your order you wait a lot longer than you would wait for that shirt maybe three (laughs) or four weeks but you know it will arrive eventually um in other cases if the music is still under copyright um we will rent the music from the publisher uh oh you know not not again not super complicated but you do need to know what you're doing you need to need to know what piece what pieces are under copyright um and and with that you know it's it's just a matter of of contacting the publisher and, and filling out some paperwork and things like that. So,
0: but this is why it's so important to have, you know, when orchestras do their programming, they, they actually consult with you. Like what is, because they're, they're looking at programming, but they're also looking at a budget, right? Because it costs money for these pieces. Yes.
2: And you do, you do need to stay under budget, you know, use as much as the money you can, but stay under budget. But um that you know that what I just described doesn't really eat up a lot of the budget, some of it, but what what will really dig into it um are dealing with some of the copyright concerns so mm-hmm. suppose you wanted to do um you want to do a piece that's under copyright, but you want to make it super cool, so you're gonna add let's add some some dancers uh, you know, and um before the dancers come out on stage, we actually want to. Have an actor out there who's going to be doing some I know, interpretive acting I, I don't know you know, so in other words, anytime you add something uh, I want to be
0: the interpretive actor or and dancer
2: yeah, I don't even know how to do that I don't know why I said that
0: <laughs> I want to go to that concert that sounds I great do I, <laughs> mean, I I think we've seen some people that think they can dance, but would we would classify it as interpretive, but anyway,
2: I don't know what any of that means actually, but um <laughs> <laughs> So, anytime you add something to a copyrighted piece that the, that the composer didn't write in themselves, um, you you have to pay for that. You have to get permission, first of all, and then you have to pay for it and license it.
0: You have to get permission from the publisher, right? Is that what you're saying? The, or
2: the copyright holder, yeah, which is oh. not always the same
0: thing. Interesting. Oh, yeah. so, interesting.
2: So, Juilliard recently did a big virtual performance of Ravel's Bolero. It, it was an enormous project because it wasn't just. You know a bunch of, of players in tiles that playing the piece it was we added those actors and those dancers and we arranged part of it for jazz ensemble there was a lot going on there plus we had to post it online so to break it down um well plus the piece is still under copyright in the united states so okay first of all we had to get permission to even perform it at all okay those are called small rights then we had to get something called grand rights grand rights uh, were permissions so we could use those actors, those dancers. Then we had to. In I thought we were going to have to get an arranging license. In this case, we did not. But uh, generally, you would if you're going to arrange a bolero for a jazz ensemble, you have to get permission to do that.
1: To change it up.
2: To change it up exactly. Yeah. And then finally, we had to um, get permission to actually post it online, which is called synchronization rights. So it was like a multi-step process that took a few weeks. And Ravel's Bolero is published by Boozy and Hawks, but they couldn't give us the permission. They had to go to the Ravel estate and get their permission first. Um, In this case, Boozy, although they are the publisher, they are not the copyright holder. They had to uh, contact the Ravel estate in order to get, get us legal. Yeah. So this process took maybe about three weeks total. It's a lot of waiting around. It's a lot of confirming. We did have to send them our our score, uh, a full score with all of the markings in there that we were, you know, here are all our plans. So you can see it in a musical format. Here's what we're gonna do. Um, it turned out to be super successful, and you know, it was it was a great learning curve for all of us. Just you know, how many steps are involved just to do something like this? It was crazy. But now we are legal and all paid up.
1: I just want to make sure I understand this. So if this was, say, if you were doing that same concert in Chattanooga, would all of that fall to the, the library for all those rights issues?
2: Yes. In fact, even more so. Um, at Juilliard, I, you know, there's actually somebody who, who does the synchronization rights. In this case, I was, I was helping her. Um, but at, at a place like Chattanooga... Yes, absolutely. The librarian would do all of that. The difference is um, a lot of these fees are are based upon the organization's budget. So in Chattanooga, the money might have been a little less because I mean, they're, you know, they they right. can't charge you know a smaller orchestra a crazy amounts. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, it's, it's it is fascinating. So it is, it is a lot of a lot of research, a lot of back and forth with different. You have to you you kind of have to know when somebody says oh we want to do this and this and this you know you have to be like well actually we need to find out if we can if we can get permission from these people and so you have to have that information kind of at the, the you know in in the, the top of your head
2: i know sometimes i feel like i'm the buzzkill in meetings it's like everyone has all <laughs> these amazing ideas and i'm like yeah. one going well you know we can't do this you know it's it's always Let's let's wait and see what they say. You know, right. I definitely had a experience with somebody wanting to arrange a piece. You can you can do, make all the arrangements you want in your living room. You can take any piece in the world and make cool arrangements. The issue is when you go to perform it. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's when you have to deal with a license. So I remember uh, dealing at one point with a percussionist who wanted to arrange a John Adams piece and. They had already made the arrangements, and it it was going to be programmed in a major concert series. And I thought, okay, well, let's hold on. I know you already did it. I know it's already programmed. I know it's already on on the season announcement and all of this. But we just better double check. And we double checked, and John Adams said no. And it's it's within his right oh, really? to say no. He yeah. said, "Well, I don't want it for percussion because you know you lose the string sonority. You know you." So he he rejected it. And therefore, that's the end of the road. You can't perform it at that point. Yeah. It's been rejected. So, you know, I, I was not popular at that point. But, <laughs> but then again, I think. well, But they're hiring me to keep the organization legal. So, right. you know,
0: getting sued is a, an even bigger buzzkill. There you go. Let's talk about what uh, what we're really here to talk about. Let's talk about auditions, because as I said, I don't think many people know about uh, an orchestra library audition. So, can you talk me through it? What happens, you know, from from the start to to the end? Let's you know, walk me through that process.
2: Yeah. So it starts the same way as as you would for a uh, a playing audition, where you send in your resume, and depending on the orchestra, sometimes you get rejected on resume round. I guess, like I'm hearing that that happens sometimes. I don't. But um, the next step is they will invite you instead of a playing audition, it's actually a written test. Um, Things are changing these days, but you know, even as, as early as five years ago, it was, you you know, you fly out there and you, you take this written test, which will probably last maybe two, two and a half hours, occasionally three hours.
0: So you sit, you sit there for two, two and a half, three hours taking a test with everybody.
2: Yeah. And you're in the room, you're in the room with the other candidates. So, in that way, it's not blind. However, you don't put your name on the test. Generally, um, you're you're a, they, you've gotten a number or something like that. So I had number two or four.
0: So so you're in the room with all the other candidates that are are there, um, but no one else from the organization is in the room. Do you have is there a is there a proctor? Um, what can you bring in with you?
2: So there's always somebody from the organization in the room. Maybe an audition coordinator. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's the principal librarian. If this is for an assistant librarian position, it you know usually one or two at least um, people from the organization. Uh, most librarians will bring in a small toolkit. So I, th- this is going to sound ridiculous, but you know it's it's you it, know the the tools that you're used to working with. Um, you know your 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 favorite pencil or you know things like that and things that you think you might need you know within reason if there's a huge project that they expect you to do in the exam they will probably provide you with materials understanding that people can't fly with all kinds of stuff so so you have um, you have a
0: toolkit you kind of like a, like what a doctor would bring to a house call with like one of those crazy electric erasers
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well i don't actually use those but i suppose you could bring those um Generally people pare it down the audition, but it's weird because you do see all of all of the candidates. So in general I would say if I had to pick a, a number that they invite, it's usually around 20 people. So you see all all other 19 people in the room with you. But again, you have a number on your test, so the the judging committee doesn't know who you are.
0: Yeah, so when you so you, when you turn even if even if the principal Library or assistant principal librarian is in the room with you. you turn in your test there's no name they don't know. So the people grading the test don't actually know who took the test.
2: That's right And I should backtrack a little bit that what's becoming popular these days is you know after you send in your resume before you're, um, before you actually show up to the exam they're, they're starting to kind of send people at home projects to complete um, but just simply because they take a, a lot longer. So maybe they'll have you uh, do a finale engraving or a Sibelius engraving of, of a, a part to see what your computer skills are like, or maybe they'll have you do a Photoshop project, maybe a page turn fix or something like that. So anything that involves a, a lot of time and probably a computer, they'll, they'll ask you to do it at home. So then you bring those to the audition with you again with you know, without your name on it and things like that. Um, so so tell me me what, can, can
0: you, sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but because this is, this is really fascinating because, so c- can you explain what it means to engrave something? You had mentioned that you, you might have, part of the test might be an engraving. What does that mean?
2: That means that instead of, um, you know, everyone's seen handwritten music, um, you know, that that somebody has painstakingly written out in, in hand manuscript. Um, but, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen printed music that's actually you can you can use software at home and, and depending on your method, you can actually create the, the printed pages at home using the most popular Finale and mm-hmm. uh, Sibelius software.
1: Oh, so like if you wanted to put a fourth horn part in the bassoons or something weird like that, they might ask you to do that transposition and engrave a part so that it looks nice?
2: You're absolutely right. And I had I left that out to just not be super complicated. But yeah, it's never just like, hey, take this handwritten part and engrave it. It's never that easy. It's always like, hey, take this handwritten part, transpose it for this instrument, and now engrave it. So it's always like a, a two-step thing. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
2: So the whole time you're engraving, you're going, God, I hope I got this right. Like, what if I'm like engraving this whole thing and the whole transposition is wrong so you're triple-checking everything? And-
0: so a librarian has to actually also know about um, transposing you know, every instrument in the, in the orchestra.
2: Yeah. You have to be able to read a score really well. And, you know, as a string player, a violinist, I, I, I didn't grow up with that sort of background. So that's been, that's been a challenge for me. You know, everyone has their thing in the library and mm-hmm. that's the one I, you know, I have to really, I just double check myself all the time. Like, and I, I'm getting it now, but I've been doing this for a while.
0: You've taken a number of violin auditions. You've taken a number of orchestra, uh, orchestra library auditions. What, what's the difference? What's the same?
2: The difference is, uh, oh gosh. You know what? I'll say what, what the same is, is this, you have the same exact anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, the same exact, uh, you know, intimidation from other candidates. It's not that they intimidate you, but you, you feel intimidated by them. It's just the same, you know, when you sit down to take a written test and I, I didn't even get into what the test is. Usually it involves everything from um, for some of the transposition things we were talking about. They also will check your manuscript. If you think about it, if you need to make an insert or add a few bars to a piece that is already in manuscript, it's not a printed part. If you try to put an insert of something that you engraved on a computer into a handwritten part, it's going to look absolutely ridiculous. So you need to be able to do both. Um mm-hmm. Similarly, if the part is already engraved, you need to be able to make an insert that perfectly fits that spot. Yeah, so that, that you know, they'll include a little handwritten part on there. They'll include a bowing sample. Let me see what your bowings look like. Um, you know, translate these musical terms. Um, a lot of stuff on copyright, usually. Wow. Uh, lately, there have been some questions about, you know, uh, dealing with um, issues with other staff members. Um, <laughs> because, you know, that, that comes up. Just as much as it comes up with dealing with other musicians in the orchestra, they're the same exact problems that you might have on a staff. So,
0: but so that's that's a difference because in an orchestra in, or in an instrumental audition, they're not asking you what kind of issues you had with your previous stand partner.
2: Well, that's a good point, that's true. But
0: I've seen or that, like, I mean, with, with librarian and for
1: example, personnel manager, if the librarian isn't communicating the needs of a score. Uh, to the personnel manager they might get behind the eight ball and trying to hire people mm-hmm. and i'm sure there's a way that the personnel manager could stiff the librarian too I, I can't think of it off the top of my head but that's because i'm biased well it
0: would be it, i would think it would be if a personnel manager if you added some players and didn't oh, tell the library yeah and then first rehearsal somebody shows up and they don't have a music where's my music absolutely where's my music and the library says i didn't know you needed one yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Matt and I are just going to have our own conversation, if that's okay. I know,
2: but that, that's, that's very true, though. It's definitely happened.
0: Yeah, no, I know. Believe me, I've been the one that's forgotten to tell people. <laughs> same.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Funny how I couldn't remember that, though. Right? <laughs> so so we talked about, yeah, the same the same kind of anxieties, the same kind of just that nervous nervousness about taking a, a test. I mean, an audition... Um, whether it be a first round of of an instrumental audition or the or the first round of, of a library audition, you have that anxiety, right? So I have a question though. What do you do? You have a routine that you that you do before taking an audition?
2: Yeah, um, I did want to jump in and tell you what I think is different about
0: oh sure uh, yeah. library Sorry. auditions.
2: Um, once you pass the exam round, the next round you won't be taking another exam. So like you know, a violin audition, you're going to keep playing your violin in every round. Uh, the next round for a librarian is going to be an interview round and that will likely be this was shocking to me the first time so it's not just like uh you know a few people it's usually about 20 or 25 uh, musicians from the orchestra who are on an audition committee and that's just a lot of people to face in a conference room wow um you know maybe five or so will be talking um if you pass out of that round, it, it's the same thing as a playing thing where you, you you will go to the finals and you'll go to a super final round and all of that. But in the final round is when they usually have the music director involved and they'll do most of the talking. Um, and it, it's intimidating. All of a sudden you're just talking to the music director of Boston Symphony or something and it's like, oh, oh, what's happening here? It can be hard to keep it together.
0: So are all the, are all the rounds in the same day or are there, are there have you had to go back at, at other you know different days?
2: Um, Same as a playing audition. Uh, They're rarely all in the same day, but usually at least maybe the the test and that first interview will be in the first day and sometimes consecutive days, things like that. Usually they fly you back or you fly yourself back for the the music director round. Um, At that point, same as a playing audition, they may have you come in for a week trial, just work in the library, interact with the musicians, you know, see if, you know, see what you're like on the job.
0: Again, okay, yeah, again, similar to like similar to an instrumental audition where you gotta sit and play with the orchestra for a week. Right. Lisa, how many
1: people do they generally weed out of that from that test?
2: Um let's say if they did start with those twenty people, it usually goes down to about maybe eight for the semis and in general, it's usually three for the finals.
0: Yeah, that's still a lot. Yeah, it's hardcore. So, I mean, and a lot of it, too, is you have to be able to kind of bridge that gap or be on that fence between being an orchestral musician and a staff player person, right?
2: You know, you just hit on my number one library philosophy, which is, um, you know, there are all these things that we've talked about, about preparing music and dealing with copyright and, and all these things um it, i consider that 50 percent of the job because i think and not everyone feels this way but i think that the other half of a librarians job is customer service and so you are if you think about it you're there to make the musician's life easier on stage therefore that means you might need to work differently with each musician you need to get to know each one know what you know what their needs are maybe Maybe this musician is a little older and has some eyesight issues. Well, then you have to figure something out with them so they're not struggling to read the notes on stage. You know, it's not their response. They're not they don't have to deal with it solely You know, on them. I should be able to help them. Things like that. So I. I'm not saying I you know become friends with every single person, but you do need to get to know each musician pretty well. It's part I think it's part of the job.
1: By virtue of the audition process and by virtue of you being listed in the program as principal librarian it seems to me that you you are part of that unit as opposed to a management unit is is that true or or, or does like the general manager or the executive director feel like you're part of the, that management team
2: that's Fabulous question, and um, I think you you have just won the hearts over of every librarian out there. I feel, and I know a lot of other librarians feel that you are considered a member of the orchestra in in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, in the New York Philharmonic. You actually are listed on the program page as a member of the orchestra. In some of the, in Chattanooga, I, w- I was not. In Chattanooga, I was considered a staff member, and so it it depends on the organization mm. um, and and their views on it. You know, remember that if you are going to be part of the orchestra, that means you're going to get things like overtime, and yeah, you know, there are certain perks. However, if there is a strike, then you're striking too. Right. So, it's, it goes both ways.
0: Yeah. So it, it all depends on the organization whether or not you're on their CBA or uh, listed as a staff member.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: I asked a little bit uh, before. I don't think we we got we got around to it, but I want I am curious though. What type of routine do you have? Do you have a routine? Do you, is it was it the same is it a same routine for for a violin audition that it is for a library audition?
2: In some ways, yes. So, you know, for a playing audition, a violin audition, I would spend I had this whole thing where I'd go 6 or 8 weeks depending on the audition, I'd make a whole plan of attack with the excerpts. Um, you know, kind of could, like like as if you're training for a, a marathon or something. Mm-hmm. I do the same sort of thing for a library uh, interview, uh, library audition, just because, um, you know, you have to prepare for that test. So that might mean, you know, s- sit down, you're going to study their website and see what pieces they've, they're, they're doing next season, what pieces they've done in our current season, just start researching some of those. I run over all my transpositions. I just get ready for it in the same way, spend a few hours each day doing some sort of studying for that. But also, you know, I taper off the same way I would for a violin audition right before so you don't freak yourself out. One thing I've learned, i learned it in violin auditions, but it's come in handy for a library is to to so silly. But I, I bring snacks and I bring water and I bring stuff to the audition day. So you have no idea how long that process is going to go. You better bring food and water and and something to do or, you know, whatever. So you're occupied and, and well fed that day. This is advice I actually give to Juilliard students who are new to the audition process. Um, Even bring uh, headphones, earbuds, or something like that to just kind of block out what's going on sometimes. It really helps out a lot, too. I do the same thing for library auditions, you know? Sometimes it helps just to go into your own world and refocus.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's excellent advice, actually, because like you said, you don't know how long you're going to be there. and all of a sudden, you're going to have a sugar crash or or something. You're going to get hungry, and and you're not going to be able to p- perform at at your best. Exactly. So now, so you have your you have your routine beforehand. What happens afterwards? Like, so you're pumped up with adrenaline. You've done. You've taken your your uh, library audition. What do you do? Is there a so, is there a routine you go through? Or you go on walks. You, I don't know. I I mean, I used to I used to go to a bar. But that—that's just me.
2: So this is after after the test is over, or after while waiting, or?
0: Well, I guess yeah. Maybe let's 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 talk about while waiting. What do you? Is there anything you can do while you wait?
2: Yeah, sometimes they'll send you back to your home, your hotel, and you know a lot of these auditions have taken to uh, calling you instead of making you wait in a room. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 a little more personal that way, and also a little less embarrassing if you don't advance, you know, and you're not in front of a whole bunch of other people. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of times they will send you, send you back or, you know, in uh, San Francisco symphony, I think after, while I was waiting around, I think I walked the entire city. I was, I had so much adrenaline. I was just like, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to just going to keep walking. <laughs> and I thought, well, let's not, you know, let's not get stuck in any, you know, let's, let's keep on the street, keep a good, um, cell signal just in case they call. And of course they call when I was in the basement of a banana Republic with hardly any signal, you know.
0: And of course, you were in a banana republic. So you shopped to blow off some steam.
2: Apparently so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying on skirts when they called. So oh, I thought you, you would know. be looking
0: for clothes for me, but that's uh. that's fine too.
2: <laughs>
0: trying on skirts <laughs> is fine, you know. So when you when they called, what happened? Were you were, did you have signal?
2: Yeah, I had enough of a signal, and I heard that it was good news. So that was enough for me. So I had advanced to the next round.
0: That's so you you get it, you advance. And now there's the the um, the interview round, right? Yes. And so, talk, walk me through an interview round. What's 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 it kind of like to do in a library interview? What are, what are some of the questions that they might ask?
2: It's very. A lot of the musicians ask very specific questions that uh, problems that they may have encountered during the current season or something. Something that's fresh on their minds. You know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's very rarely something super technical that you know you freak out about, but it's. Often just in the general ballpark of how do you deal with people? That's a lot of of the interview process is them trying to figure out what your personality is like and your interactions and things like that. So if you view it, again, this is where the orchestra background comes in handy. If you view it from a musician standpoint, I mean, what would you want from a librarian? I mean... Somebody knowledgeable, of course, and really good at their job, but don't you want someone that's really approachable and kind of fun, you know, and, and someone that has a sense of humor because sometimes the library is hilarious. You know, it's just this weird stuff that happens. Well, to me, it's hilarious anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's what I would want. I would want somebody that I feel comfortable going in the library and saying I'm having trouble with this or can you help me with this or Occasionally, it's hey, I have a gig coming up, I have a wedding coming up, I'm in a play, and you know this music's all messed up. Can you help me fix it in time? You know, I'm fine with doing outside stuff if if it's going to help, you know, maintain a bond between me and the player within reason. You know.
0: Absolutely. So some of the questions that that they that they might ask you is like some, you know, what would you do if? But you've you've actually encountered some some crazy stuff in your career um give me one example of something that happened some sort of a something that happened that you had to solve because i mean a lot of a lot of the you know we we talked about what a librarian does right and you were talking about the actual specifics of, of of being a librarian an orchestra librarian but there are there are things that are not in the job description that you've had to deal with and i'm sure we've all had to deal with but give me give me one top 10 story that you have of, of something crazy that happened to you that you had to fix?
2: Um, I have, I have a whole roster of really great crisis, crisis, uh, scenarios, but I think my all time favorite is when I was head librarian of Aspen, which I think I held that position for five, six summers, something like that. One year, uh, one of the faculty members came in, they were about to play in the concert and they had ridden their, their bike to the concert. And, of course, you know, Aspen's up in the mountains. And on the way to the concert, there was one of those weird, like, mountain rainstorms. It was like downpours. And the faculty member had had their instrument on their back. And the music was in the music pocket. So they came in. There. Thankfully, their instrument was totally fine. But the music was just decimated. It was like pulp. And it was a rental part. And at the time, this is a while ago, and I didn't have. A, now I scan everything. Everything gets scanned just for backup for this exact reason. I didn't have it, so asking a player to read from a score is really uncool. Like that's you just never want to have to get to that point. So the first thing I did, I thought, well, it's still kind of intact. Let me try to let me try to use the copier and create a new part. But it was so wet that music that wedge is actually just photocopies black spots. So like quite great. I don't have enough time to, to run back to my apartment and get my hair dryer. What can I do? And so I was like running around the hallways of the the aspen tent. And I pull open a door and there was one of those fans that dry paint on the walls. Those like gigantic things. So I hauled that out. I plugged it in and I, I used a <laughs> test page first. I held it up and I guess I held it too close because the edge caught on fire a little bit. But okay, great. I need to back away from the fan. So I was able to dry the part enough. Meanwhile, you know, the, the player's standing there watching. So I finally sent them on stage to go warm up. I will fix this for you because having them watch you, it only freaks you out more. So I was able to back away from the fan, dry the part enough, not, not enough to put it on the stand because was still all floppy, but I was able to dry it enough where I could, uh, copy it and create a new part. There was not a lot of time left before the downbeat. But it was one of those moments like, Oh, my God, I did it. I did it. And that was a train wreck of a situation. I guess you have to kind of think on your feet, because ultimately, was it my fault? No, it really wasn't. But do I have to fix it? Absolutely. I need to figure it out. It is 100%. Yep.
0: Yeah. So you you mentioned, well, first, I want to ask, though, after that ordeal, how sweaty were you? Cause I could, (laughs) I'd be, I'd be dripping. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But
0: but you mentioned, so one of the things uh, that I heard was now you make scans of all the music that you get, all the parts, you know, when it comes in, you make a scan of it. And I think that's probably something that, I don't know if you learned from that specific experience, but that's something that I think anyone listening to this should actually hear and and recognize that it is so important to have backup right
2: yeah and to be clear i don't scan um i don't scan to be able to re-perform it off the scans um or anything like that it really is just for emergency um -hmm. um, so i mean just for for, i'm also putting that out for copyright reasons that once i scan it it doesn't mean that i'm just not going to rent the music again it just means that For a situation like an Aspen rainstorm, I'm covered, you know, and it.
0: (laughs) You're covered. You're covered for an Aspen rainstorm. I think we shall all be covered. It's
2: one of those things, though, that like a lot of library is all the the work ahead of time. So that takes a lot of time to scan an entire orchestra set of parts. Right. But so but you do it. It's. It, it's all for the preparation, like being a good Girl Scout or whatever, because, you know, the most stressful time for a librarian, in my opinion, is the first rehearsal. That's where anything can go wrong. All of a sudden, everyone realizes their parts messed up or they have a page term problem or who knows what. Um, but by the time you get to the concert, that's the most stressful time for the player in most cases, not for the librarian. Yeah. Now all the work is done. Now we just, you know, maybe we'll put out a score. We'll, you know, set the folders, collect the folders. But it's a total reverse from the players schedule
0: right, right do you
1: have to deal with uh the rehearsal numbers and letters and stuff too
2: yeah and that's part of the uh, prep process so you need to make sure i mean in most cases it's going to match throughout the the orchestra set but you have to find out hey hey what what score is the conductor going to have is it a guest conductor can, can we find right. out ahead of time you don't always you can't always find out sometimes there's just no answer Sometimes they'll say they're going to show up with one score and it turns out to be something totally different. Oh, crap. Now what? What do I do? So um, I have absolutely frantically uh, penciled in set of a rehearsal set, you know, maybe a different set of numbers or letters into a score before a rehearsal starts. You have 10 minutes. Go. You know, and maybe that means you're only going to get through movements one and two. Well, I'll do the rest at intermission, I guess. Um, in some cases the conductor has been super cool and just, we always, always, always have a conductor score ready to go in case, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. they're going to be super cool and be like, I'll just use that while you, while you fix up my score or something like that.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. One, something I was, I just thought about, so, you know, Matt, you freelance a lot, right? Yes. And I'm, I was actually curious, what does a, does a, does an orchestra librarian do freelance work? Is that a thing?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, in the groups that I play in, there's always someone that's designated as the librarian and has been that for some length of time, but it's probably not what Lisa's doing, you know. Right? I think but I'm it, asking.
0: Actually, I'm I'm curious. Like, Lisa, do you do freelance work? Does it like an orchid? Because you have a full time job at Juilliard. Does it do? Do people call you to do
2: freelance work? Oh, absolutely, and so much more now that oh. I, I work in New York. Um, just because there's so many organizations in one place. So um, just recently, actually, I started subbing a whole bunch with the Metropolitan Opera. Um, and that, it, it's, if you can imagine, it's a, I know it's still orchestra library, but it's a whole different world because you're dealing with opera. And so that means you also have, now we have vocal scores that are, that are in the mix, you know, and there's just so many other components to, you know, obviously an opera is a large scale production. And there are a lot of needs from the players and the singers conductors and so it's been it's been great it's opened up my entire mind like wow this is it's so exciting to work there um i've also helped out in new york philharmonic library which it's okay it's more similar to what i do but to work in a library that revered you know and with musicians that incredible it's also i mean it's it blows my mind sometimes this is Incredible. The the librarians that are in that library full time are just so knowledgeable that you just kind of like hope to soak it all up. Um, and also, I work for American Ballet Theatre, um, so again, a different kind of library. It's ballet now. We're instead of singers or musicians. I mean, we still work with musicians, but now we have dancers incorporated into the mix. So I loved that. I loved seeing the different sorts of libraries and kind of working in them and and just seeing how different they are from what I do at Juilliard.
0: Well, this has been actually been, f- been pretty fascinating to me. I mean, I know I actually, I have a little bit firsthand knowledge of, of, of what an orchestra librarian does, but I, you've actually taught me some stuff I didn't even know. So yeah, thank you. Yeah,
1: and for me, probably 100% more than I knew at the start <laughs> of this. Good librarians just make it happen, and the musicians don't have to think about it very much.
0: So uh, thank you. Again, I just wanted to say thank you. Lisa uh, Dempsey-Kane, the principal orchestra librarian of the Juilliard School. Thank you so much for being here with us on Behind the Screen. We'll see you next time.